morning, church. I sat right there last week, and I was listening to Pastor Tim preach. If you missed last week's sermon, you need to go find this thing online and get in with it. And I leaned over to my wife. Some of you may have noticed Pastor Tim in the middle of his sermon said, you can't just be whispering or something like that. I leaned over to my wife and I said, I don't know, what am I talking about next week? Because he had just run over everything I was thinking about. And more. So much more. I want to take you to just one piece of what he had to say last week. It's from Romans chapter 1. And as he was reading to us from this passage, he was talking about the wrath of God. He was reading chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, and this is what it says. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Suppress the truth that God is trying to share with our world. We've been talking about the character of God. We've talking about the gospel of the kingdom is the good news about who God is. The good news about his character. That hanging throughout the scripture, a, a thread flowing from beginning to end is an accusation about who God is. We, because of our brokenness and our sinfulness, immediately throw ourselves into the center stage, into the spotlight, saying, we're the problem, we're the thing that needs to be solved. Our sins are really the big deal. Our sins sins are serious. But if God's character is broken, broken, if God can't be trusted, then that's a very minor issue. But if God's character is valid, if God is, in fact, trustworthy, if God does, in fact, love you, then the forgiveness of our sins is swept up in that. Pastor Tim talked about them suppressing that news. Because, very important word here, what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. There's enough information for them to know, one. And Pastor Tim took us a little further and if you, haven't, if you haven't heard this sermon, you need to. And if you have, you probably ought to go back again. He said, if you really took that word excuses and you broke it down and said, what is it really at its essence in the Greek? He said, they're without defense. Why? Because they have rejected their defender. That's it. So as we begin on that 
well-laid foundation this morning. Would you join me for a word of prayer? Father, we join ourselves today as a congregation to the Holy Spirit's leadership, to the direction you wish to take each one of us as you shape the mercies for us today. And we ask that in this church, in these moments, that your will is done here as it is in heaven. Amen. This morning I want to talk to you under the title, His Tears, His Scars, His Heart. His Tears, His Scars, His Heart. I want to, I want to give you an opening illustration that's right out of the scriptures. I want to, I want to take you into the, the days right after the crucifixion. The days right after the resurrection. The disciples, mostly, 10 out of the 11 of them, have come to believe that Jesus is alive. They're all excited about it. And those of you who are regular biblical scholars who are in the Bible regularly looking at it, remember who is not convinced yet. He gets his nickname from this story. He tells the other disciples who keep telling him that Jesus is alive, I'll believe that when I get some real evidence of it. I will tell you guys when I will believe it. I think you're all crazy. I will tell you when I will believe it. When I can touch the nail prints in his hand and feel the scars in his side. When I can do that, then I'll believe you. Then I'll believe that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. Well, because God is good. Because God does love doubters. Because God comes and faces us in our doubts and answers our questions, he showed up while Thomas was present among the disciples. And as he showed up, my, my imagination, preacher's imagination, has him turning to Thomas and making eye contact. You know how this happens, right? You're the kid in the seventh grade. I was standing in a science class. I was teaching. It was actually a freshman science class. I, uh, I, I substitute once in a while, and I was in this class. I was talking about creation evolution is- issues, and there was a kid. He was sitting about, oh, over there, kind of where you are this morning. And, you know, your science class, you everybody sit, everyone's sitting on stools. And I'm standing about this far from him, probably, maybe even a little closer, and he is just yakking away at the person next to him. Now, I have taught enough high school classes to know that this happens. But he was so busy talking to the person next to him that I walked up beside him while still talking and still giving my lecture. And I was standing right next to him. I mean, I was breathing on the young man. And as I was standing there, all of a sudden he somehow recognized that my voice was louder than it was a minute ago. And he turned from his conversation and looked up, and to his horror, there I was. You know that moment when you're busted eye to eye. See, Thomas had been telling his friends, I will tell you when I will believe. 
when I touch his hands, when I feel feel the scar, then I will buy it. And there was Jesus. And he said, Thomas, I've heard your request. I'm taking it as a prayer. And so here are my hands. Touch them. Puts his hands in the nail press. Jesus is insisting. And then he opens his robe and he said, here's the scar on my side. Touch it. And when Thomas touches the scars in his hands and on his side, Thomas says, and this is the only place in the New Testament where this phrase is made. And it is on the lips of Thomas, the doubting Thomas. I I really think that's a bad name for him. But he says, my Lord and my God. What took Thomas across the line was the scar. When you have lost something or someone and you're broken, when your heart doesn't feel like it can be healed, Jesus' scars are very important. And when he laid his hands on the scars that were made for him and for us, he then could say with full confidence, my Lord, I want to talk to you today about the tears, the scars, and the heart of this God. Exodus chapter 33. These these couple of chapters, Exodus 33 and 34, are are very significant ones to me. I love them because they give your your mind an opportunity to just explode with imagination. I don't know how many of the rest of you live in images in your head. I do. This is one of the things I love about the Bible. And I can read these stories and just the images start to come alive for me. And these these moments, these very critical, significant, theologically and personally experiences are huge. Here's a story with Moses talking to God. And God has has given Moses the impression that Israel's going to go on. He'll send the angel with them, but he's not coming. And Moses is like, no, no. Angel, great. You, necessary. Angel is awesome, but you are God, and I don't want to do this without you. And so this is the interaction and the conversation. This is the the background of this. Remember, this is Moses, who's been up the mountain, received the Ten Commandments, who's come back down and faced the golden calf, broke the Ten Commandments. This is in that moment. It's, It's right after that whole breaking of the Ten Commandments, grinding up of the golden calf, making them drink the golden calf. You remember the story? This is Moses. He's a pretty tough guy right now. God is there speaking to Moses, and Moses begins to speak to him. And he says, for how will it be known that your people have found what? How how will it be known that your people have found what? Grace. Do you know that it is actually a word that appears in the Old Testament? So many Christians believe that grace is a New Testament idea. 
No, the New Testament drags this idea from the Old Testament. Here it is again. How will people know that we, the people of Israel, the scoundrels who have just worshipped the golden calf, those who complained all the way to this moment, how will, God, how will any of the nations in the world know that we have found grace if you are not with us? How will they know that all of our futility, all of our mistakes won't break us away from you because we have found grace. And if you come with us, everybody will know. You know how they'll know? Because Israel will still be a mess and God will be present. That is how God and his grace are exposed to the world still. Your neighbor looks at you and says, that guy's a mess. And you say, yes, I am. Sorry. I wish you had a better neighbor. But I am covered by the grace of a God who accepts people like me. And then your neighbor knows, well, if he could get there, maybe I could too. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken. For you have found grace. In my sight. You could take that sentence out of the scripture. You could write it on your mirror and check it every day. And it would be true every single day. You could write on your mirror. You have found grace in my sight. And it would be true of you. And as Brenda explained to morning, this, morning, uh, this morning, it was specific for this day. His mercies and his coverings specific for what he knows is coming. This is the day your girlfriend says, I'm tired of you, I'm moving on. This is the day your 15-year-old says, I hate you. This is the day your doctor says, I have bad news. It doesn't matter the day. It matters the mercy. And then the tears and the scars that show the heart of our God become central. Is it, are you getting it? Is it coming together? Is your mind tracking? You have found grace in my sight. You can add this part too. And I know you. I, I, I really hope this appears in lipstick on, on some mirrors. If you want to make it easier to clean, use a dry erase marker. Uh, that's how we write on our mirrors. So Moses, after knowing that he has grace, knowing he's covered by grace, knowing that he's known by his name, he gets really bold. I almost called this sermon, Be Bold. Because this is a pretty bold statement. Moses said, well, if that's true, then please show me your glory. You know, God, if I found grace and you know my name, can I see what you actually look like? Would you like explode in all your glory in front of me so I can really understand who I'm dealing with here? I'd like to see the glory of the God who created the universe personally. That's bold. 
because you are covered by his grace, because he knows you by name, which means he knows all about you, by the way. That's what, when, when the Bible says he knows you by name, it, it means that he knows everything about you because your name is a revelation of your character scripturally. And so when he knows your name, he knows who you are. And he knows all about you and still covers you by his grace. Moses says, he knows I was a chicken back at the burning bush and he's still covering me by his grace. He knows I didn't want to talk and he's still covering me by his grace. He knows I was so messed up about that that I, I, I let my brother become more significant in Pharaoh's eye than God's chosen, the one he wanted to be standing there. Because of God's grace, knowing all of those things, knowing I've been so mad at these people so often on this trip, it's not even, it's not even expressible. I still have grace. I'm still covered. He knows me, and he knows everything about me. And if he's still going to give me his grace, then I'm asking, can I see your glory? Is it attainable? Is it possible that I could actually see you face to face? I don't know, maybe this doesn't translate the same way. Maybe it doesn't get across to you the way it gets across to me, but I just, I'm amazed at the ask. But why not ask? Right? You didn't get the raise because you didn't ask. You didn't marry that guy, that girl, because you didn't ask. You didn't get to see what God might do because you were too afraid to ask. Prayers that don't get answered. Do you know what prayers never get answered? The ones you don't pray. And so he says, hey, I know. If you already know what mess I am and you still are covering me by your grace, For me to actually see your glory? Do you know what the answer to the question is? No, that's a ridiculous idea. Kind of. Much nicer than that. He said, uh, no, you can't do that. But I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. Why the name? Because to know someone's name is to know someone's character. To know someone's name is to know their heart. That's why it's so important that you, you're, you're known and you're covered. He says, I will give you my name. I will tell you my name. And the Lord passed in front of Moses. And he called out, Yahweh. Lord, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. You know what compassion is, right? That's, I understand what you're going through, and I'm still standing with you. Compassion and mercy. Mercy is the gift from God you don't deserve because you need it. He's there simply because you need him. 
He continues, I am slow to anger. If you don't believe me, next time you're reading one of the Old Testament prophets and they're telling Israel, this is going to happen, this is going to, this is going to happen, you start reading all the, all the things that are supposed to happen to the tribes of Israel because they've been chasing after other gods, they've been sacrificing their children to Moloch, all kinds of horrible things. Take an account of the time frame. How long between the first warning and the final execution of that judgment? How long before the first prophet says, you guys got to quit doing this, and the time the Assyrians or the Amalekites or the Armenians or whomever come rolling in? The Armenians didn't exist yet. Yet, So it would be a long time ago. But you get the picture. How long before God does this? And he turns his face from them and removes his protective shield from them. And their enemies take advantage of his absence and roll the town. It's often hundreds of years slowly given over. Slowly lot sometimes think because we read the prophets in this condensed version that God said stop it and the Assyrians did God said stop it come on stop it come on don't do that the Assyrians are going to come come on this is what the Assyrians are like don't do that they do horrible things to people they attack come on do I need to describe it to you okay Hosea describe it to them here's all the stuff that will happen and they turn their back, they turn their back, they turn their back, they turn their back. They persecute the prophet, they kill the prophet, they turn their back. They persecute the prophet, they turn their back. And finally God says, okay, can't, I can't wait any longer. I can't let you continue to harm your children, to harm yourselves, and to destroy my reputation. I am no longer going to help you. And then they come. Do you see that picture differently than what you may have had already in your head? We'll get to this word, this anger and this wrath word in a few minutes. I promise. I'm slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. Thousand generations. Understand the word thousands in Scripture to be like you counted a million ants on your, in your cupboard today. It's a huge expression of hyperbole. It's almost as if he's saying an infinite number, but he won't say an infinite number because an infinite number would just keep going on. But he's saying, I... I am willing to do this. I will lavish unfailing love for, for a long, long, long time. It's what parallels slow to anger. Do you realize that the gospel of the kingdom is right there? Because if the gospel of the kingdom is the character of the king, that's what you just saw. I will tell you my name. Here's who I am. 
I'm merciful and I'm loving and I'm caring and I'm slow to anger. And Oh, by the way, I will lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I've stopped here. Because it's only here that you're going to get the emphasis for the next portion. Continuing. I forgive, you, I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. I will lavish forgiveness for a thousand generations. Because all of us, and those of you who have read the screen, get stuck on the next line. But I do not excuse the guilty. Pastor Tim demonstrated how you get to be guilty in this story, right? The dragnet pulls you in. The dragnet is the gospel. The offer of the gospel is Jesus as your covering and Jesus as your defense attorney. Refuse the offer. You have no defender. Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn the world, but I came to save the world. And the world is already condemned because light came into the world. And they rejected the light in favor of darkness. I gave them an offer that would save them. And they rejected the offer. Straight up, that's it. I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren, the entire family is affected. This is New Living Translation explanation, explanatory piece of the translation. To help us understand what it means that the sins of the fathers go to the children to the third and fourth generation is to know that your children reap the consequences of your bad decisions. I don't want you to be paranoid about that. I want you to be careful about your decisions but I don't want you to be paranoid. I want you to pray against that. Because salvation, listen carefully to this word. Salvation breaks the cycle of pain in families. If you choose Jesus, the cycle of pain through families can stop with you. There is no reason for alcoholism to go any further than you and your family. You can stop. There is no, you, no reason for child abuse to go any further in your family because you can stop. The cycle of pain need not continue past you. So, please, go to Jesus. Let him stop before it heats the next generation. We already know that that line is true. That the sins of the parents do affect the children. And they don't just affect that first generation. They will affect the next generations and sometimes even the next generation. But then there is Jesus. And where there is Jesus, cycles will stop. Where there is misery, there is Jesus. Where there is Jesus, the misery can stop. Do you understand it in terms of the, the practical application to your life and your family and the generations beyond you? So if you are from a family that has long processed 
of suffering built into it. And you are finding yourself in your place, resisting or trying to resist very hard the the thing that would be passed on. Get close to Jesus. Be very prayerful. Every time it comes, every time the temptation, the thought, the idea comes into your mind, go to your prayer closet. Go to your time with God. Cry out to him so that he might stop the cycle. God tells us the facts here. I do not release the guilty. In fact, the sins of the fathers will carry on through the generations of the family. It will affect even the children in the third and fourth generation. With that in in your hand, please don't forget the first half of the verse. Please don't forget the caring kindness of God, the love, the slow to anger, the forgiveness that goes to a thousand generations. You see, this is the text that's saying a thousand generations of forgiveness and four generations of sadness. Do you see the comparison in the text? We split it. It's not intended to be split. It's intended to be a description of the character of God. That wonderful character of God that we find in Jesus. There it is. Moses, stuck in the cleft of the rock with God's hand over him so that his mere presence won't destroy him, passes by and God says, this is what I'm like. This is who I am. This is the revelation of my character because you need to understand And when Jesus goes after the death of John and preaches the kingdom of God throughout Galilee, he preaches the character of the king because the real good news about the kingdom of God is the character of the king. Do you understand? Now you read all these parables about the kingdom of God. When you read the parables of the kingdom of God, ask what they are saying about the king. We get caught up in the pearl. Oh, he, he sold everything he had, went for a pearl. Wonder what that pearl was like. No, no, that's not the point. The point is the king has given you something so valuable, it's more, it's worth more than everything else you have. The kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like that. Stop and ask. What's this say about the king? The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's a tiny little seed. It gets planted in the field. It grows up and becomes a tree. It expands across everything. Even the birds are coming to rest in it. Why? Because the kingdom of God is the spy mission that he sneaks into people's heart and he plants a little seed. You can just walk up to your neighbor and with kindness and love and grace for them, plant a little seed. And you can back away and say, there's a tree coming. For us, it would probably fit better in our mindset to say the kingdom of God is like an acorn. Just a little bit of seed. It's smaller than my thumb. If I throw that into your garden, you will will dwell in its shade for generations. The kingdom of God is an invasive species that grows up in our sinful planet and changes everything. When you read the gospel of the kingdom, when you read the parables of the kingdom, remind yourself that these are telling me about the character of the king. God is 
Love. First John chapter 4, God is love. He is an expression of what this thing means. A key characteristic of God is love. Right? And the Bible says we're to love God and love our neighbors because if you're going to reflect the character of the one who loves you and is love, you would become Ambassador of love in your neighborhood, in your family, with those crazy kids of yours, with those gnarly relatives of yours. God is love. Here's the part we don't want to talk about. Love does not let sin go on forever. Is that valid? Would you allow someone to come into your house and beat your children and continue to harm them and continue to beat them and continue to harm them? Would you allow allow someone to do that? Why not? Because you love your child. You would step in front of them. You would confront them. You might take some blows yourself from them. Because love love does that to us. Love cannot let evil go on forever. You see, we have this problem with the final end of things and the final destruction of things. Because it's so final. But we all understand the truth of this. We all understand the application in our own experience. We don't want sin to go on forever. We don't want evil to go on forever. We don't want the sin in us to go on forever. We don't want the evil in us to go on forever. Ever prayed against the evil that is in you? You are judging the evil and you are trying to eliminate it. So if God is love, therefore, sin must end. You see, a lot of these parables end with a statement of wrath. And they went out into the field and they gathered up all of the tares at the time of the harvest. And they separated the tares from the wheat. And they put the tares into a giant pile and they burned them up. And we say, oh, wait, 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 wait. Some of my friends might be in there. They might. Tell them about Jesus so they don't have to be in there. Some of my friends might be in there. Yeah, and it breaks God's heart a lot more than it breaks yours. He knows their name. He knows their heart, their character, every event of their life, everything that was offered to them, all the choices they rejected. Oh, it's hard to talk about these things, isn't it? I want to talk about the wrath of God for a second. Here's the Greek word, your Greek word for the day, orges. The E is pronounced like a long A, orges. This Greek word 
is translated wrath multiple times. You read Revelation and it says the wrath of God fell upon this or Gase fell on that. But I want you to catch this word in its description of a moment of the in a moment of the life of the only person who represents God specifically and completely on the planet. Christ the Son is God's own glory and expression of the very character. So he radiates God's glory and is the expression of the very character of God. Hebrews chapter 1. I, I go back to this all the time. To me, this is one of the anchors of our understanding of the Bible. If we, if we see anything but God in Jesus, we've mistaken our understanding of God. We're kind of coming to the, to the end of this braid that we've been putting together for the last several weeks. And so last strands are being pulled in and tied off now. So hopefully you're catching some of these things. Hopefully it's starting to make some sense to you. The character of God does reveal the kingdom of God because the character of God is the good news about the kingdom of God. And Jesus is representative of that character in human flesh. Jesus walked around being God's character on our planet. It was God's character who showed up that day to say, Thomas, look, I want you to believe. Touch my hands. Touch my side. Come on. I will do what is necessary to get you across the line, Thomas. And in Thomas, we are all. He will do what is necessary. It is the character of God being revealed in the parable of the son that tells us that the father not only ran out to meet the prodigal, he stands outside pleading with the older brother to go into the celebration. Pleading that he will celebrate and be joined to the father in salvation. It is the character of God that is being revealed even when he closes the door on his son. The son radiates the character of the father. Mark chapter 3. Another one of those uh, stories of Jesus that many of you may know. The story takes place on Sabbath in the synagogue. Jesus went into the synagogue, as uh, the scriptures say, was his habit on the Sabbath. He noticed a man with a deformed hand. Walks into the synagogue. He sees this brother there whom he can do something for. Since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched. Stop for a second. Go in your mind to Romans. What is God upset with? What is going on in that passage? What is he saying to, about these people? They've surprised the truth about God. Here's some people who have suppressed or are trying to suppress the truth about God. Now, the Apostle Paul certainly understands that because that was his job before he met Jesus. He was in the suppression of Christianity business before he met Jesus. Since it was Sabbath, Jesus sent him, he's watched him closely, 
if he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of what? Working on the Sabbath. Do we ever try to guard God's law in a manner that we think God, do we think God needs help with? Your job? Reveal the character of God. So if you mention God's law, by the way, you're supposed to wait until someone asks. If you mention it, you mention it as a revelation of the character of the lawgiver. Not as a chain around the hands of the person you're talking to. Until you understand the, sec the first one, don't apply the second one. End of discussion. Jesus says to the man with the deformed hand, come on. Stand over here in front of everyone. Jesus could have healed him without saying a word. He could have whispered a prayer to the father and said, when this guy leaves today, would you heal his hand? I don't want to talk about this. And the man would have walked out the door and his hand would have been fine. But what would that have said about the character of God? He was afraid to confront the Pharisees? Not, not our God. Not afraid of the Pharisees. Hey, come over here, buddy. Stand right here in front of everyone. I want everyone to see what's about to happen here. Yes, I know it's Sabbath. Turned to his critics, and he asked, told him this his piece. Does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath? Yeah. Or is it a day for doing evil? Okay. Is this a day to save a life or to destroy it? Israel had already passed a regulation for Sabbath that allowed you to go to war on the Sabbath because your enemies are not taking the day off. So it was okay to kill somebody on the Sabbath in defense of your country. But it wasn't okay to heal this poor man who had spent his life with his hand? They wouldn't answer him. He looked around at them angrily. You know, I just did the preacher thing. I talked a whole bunch about the other things that were going on. And I don't want you to miss my point. Angrily. Guess what's, what word this is? It's the same word as the Greek translation for wrath. He looked at them in wrath. And he was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. We separate this word, this final judgment word, from this, the heart of the same God who just told us that he's seeking to forgive. Grace, wrath, anger. These people were suppressing the revelation of the character of God as he sought to heal this man on the Sabbath, trying to protect the fringes of a Sabbath that, oh, by the way, God gave them. 
And there was God standing in the synagogue that day. They don't even recognize him. Had they, they would have had no objection. It's why you look at this passage today and you're not shocked. Because you have had some time understanding the character of Jesus in the New Testament. Then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand. And what happened? He was restored. A long time ago, in the Garden of Eden, there were two people who had been created. They met up with a snake, and they believed the lie of the snake about the character of God, and that broke the, re the, the relationship with God. And God showed up the next day and offered the same relationship in restoration to them that they had had the day before. There would be some modifications, which would be explained to them apparently because they show up in skins as their clothing when they're ashamed. But the restoration of that relationship has been the flowing conversation all throughout the Bible as people have struggled to understand who God is and have struggled to deal with their own sin and their own decisions and their own choices that have led them into problems or potentially will. And God is saying, hey, stay out of that hole. It's not a good one. Stay out of that mud. You'll come out stinky. Be careful about that choice. It will mess up the rest of your life for generations. And he's saying, I'm trying to help. I'm trying to restore. I'm trying to bless. I'd like to get back to a conversation with you that we spend time together face to face. And so when the man stood in front of the group and Jesus said, all right, extend your hand. The hand that had been withered, that had been stuck somehow, un unusable for the man, opened up was restored because that's what God is trying to do. To restore us outside of our brokenness, beyond our brokenness, to restore our friendships, to restore our relationship with Him, to restore our relationship with others, to restore our relationships with our children, with our spouses, with our crazy Uncle Harry. He wants to restore all of those things in our life here because they're built on the restoration of our life with him. Preacher has to pick up the pace. Thomas walks into the room with his friends one day. They're telling him again what they've told him before. Jesus is alive, Thomas. We wouldn't lie to you. The women saw him at the tomb. We've seen him in this room. I'm telling you, Thomas, he's alive. And Thomas looks across the room at the earnestness in John's face, at the, the gritted teeth and set jaw of Peter's argument. says, I will believe when I touch him for myself. And I'm not just going to touch anybody because you guys all say he's different and he's hard to recognize. This is not just touching some 
aberration that shows up. Who knows if that's not an image of the devil himself. I will believe when I can touch the nail prints in his hand and the scar on his side. That's when I'm in and not before. That's the Jesus showing up sound, by the way, if you didn't know. Into the room comes the presence of God himself. He catches the eye of Thomas. He squares up with him so that Thomas can't turn away. And he says, Thomas, I know you're having a hard time with this, but let's be done with that. Here's my hand. Touch the scar. Thomas reaches out on the insistence of Jesus and touches the scar. Jesus takes that robe that was wrapped around him and he opens it up. And he says, Thomas, you said the hands and the side touch the side. Well, Lord, I didn't actually mean it. Thomas. He takes his hand and he touches the scar on Jesus' side. Because when you live in a world where sin takes so much away from you, the scars mean a lot. That Jesus experience, what you experience, means a lot. That he bears those scars into eternity is bizarre. Except that it means a lot. It means that I don't have to carry my sins anymore because he took them to the cross and he still bears the scars. Jesus weeps three times in the New Testament. Twice over the suffering of others. Lazarus and Jerusalem and once when he's facing the cross himself knowing the separation that sin will cause and the scars that will be left not just on his body. The tears of Jesus mean something because he's crying for his friend whom he loves, whom he's lost whom he could have helped, but he didn't. He's crying for the tears of all those around who felt the loss. He's crying as he looks down on Jerusalem because he knows that the Romans are coming and the city will fall. And he weeps because of the cost sin as it weighs on him at last. The tears matter. The scars matter. Because in Christ is a revelation of the Father. And all of us are a bit of Thomas All of us need to know that he's covered the cost.
because it's our inheritance. The character of God is revealed in Christ. The exact representation of God in human flesh. The character of God is revealed throughout the Bible. It's never been different. The gospel has always been the same. That this king isn't trying to keep you out of the kingdom. He's trying desperately to get you in. Let's pray. Father, there is no way that this makes any sense in our humanity. We need the translation of your Holy Spirit. But you need our hearts so that this can get down deep inside. That this can become the most significant thing in our life. Let us define our life from the day we met Jesus on. I pray for the person who's here, the person who's listening, who's trying to decide. I pray for the power of the resurrected Christ to meet them eye to eye, face to face, Bring them to an understanding that God in Christ, in the speaking of the Holy Spirit to their heart, is trying to take them home. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you're in the building today, you were making that decision. I know it's not a light decision. I know the implications are huge. I'm going to be out at that next steps table probably about 10 minutes before I come back and teach second look class. Would you come by? Talk to me. Give me your contact information so that I can give you a call so we can connect this week everything in your life is before Jesus and after Jesus it's not just the calendar that starts over with Jesus it's every follower's life if you have been a follower and then you fell away you already know there was my before Jesus then my after Jesus then my left Jesus, and I'd like to come back to Jesus. I'll be out there for about, like I said, about 10 minutes is all I have. If you can't make it during that time, my email address is published in all of the newsletters and bulletins and stuff like that. 
Send me a note. Thank you for being with us today. It is certainly my desire that God pours out his blessings on you in ways this week that you can't imagine. That the reality of Christ trying to get you home becomes real and clear to you. That you will yoke yourself together with the one who's capable of pulling the yoke because you're not. And that you will feel his blessing, know his blessing, be transformed by his blessing. Take a minute after this next song to say hello to the people around you. God bless you.